So you enjoy playing, and I certainly enjoy the call to preach and teach. Well, y'all know where we're at, Proverbs. I'm going to find it in just a minute in my own Bible. Proverbs 28. We resume in the book of Proverbs tonight, gathering God's wisdom. So, good Lord's Day already. Looking forward to continuing in Luke's gospel on Sunday mornings. What a joy it is to be back in the gospel of Luke and looking at Christ, even the barely conceived Christ we saw this morning in the womb of Mary. And so, But tonight we turn to God's wisdom. And as we said last week, Christ is the wisdom of God. We see the wisdom of God in Christ. We see the wisdom of God lived out in the life of Christ. Now, I just, for curiosity's sake, I just went on Amazon and just typed in leadership just to see how many books on leadership there are uh, just on Amazon. And that word, I think I typed in leader, it returned over 100,000 results for books in Amazon books on leaders or leadership. And then I just did a Google search on leader. 5.1 billion websites, articles, something on the internet uh, in terms of leader or leadership. And I think we can safely say that the world is interested in leadership. The world is interested in leadership. Uh, some people want to be leaders. Some people want to know how to develop good leaders. Some people want to know which leaders to follow. And so leadership is always at the forefront of people's curiosity. Therefore, we can find multiple books, multiple websites to read on leaders and leadership. Yet, for all the resources in the world, all the words that have been written about leadership, all the articles about leadership, we still live in a culture that can't define leadership. We truly live in a culture that has no idea what true leadership looks like. And how do I know that? Because people continue to follow all sorts of bad leaders even today. And that's been true throughout human history, right? Political leaders like Hitler have been followed. False teachers like Joel Osteen have been followed. There's been all sorts of greedy business people that have been followed over the years. And it stretches all throughout redemptive history. Simply put, people have a tendency to follow anybody who steps up to lead. Now, such ignorance of leadership will eventually give rise to the worst leader in all of human history, the capital A Antichrist. He will step on the scene and he will be followed by millions in the tribulation period. Yet he will eventually demand worship as God from those millions that follow him. However, that's the ultimate end of people's ignorance of leadership. Now the good news is for us tonight and for anyone who picks up scripture, we can determine what a good leader is. We can get insight into proper biblical leadership. And in other words, as we think about leadership in the world, leadership does matter to the Lord. He's written a lot about leadership, a lot in the book of Proverbs, a lot throughout Scripture about ways to lead. And so tonight, we're kind of in a concentrated section on leadership in Proverbs 28. We're in a section that's really tied together loosely by leadership principles and we've already looked at a few of these in proverbs 28 in verses 1 to 12 uh, we defined or what i called verses 1 to 12 the righteousness of leadership in other words proper biblical leadership god honoring leaders are those who primarily above all obey the lord their lives are are marked by obedience they have a righteousness that's not of their own by their faith in christ 
but they also live righteously in the world. They seek to obey the Lord. And we talked about the benefit of that in leaders. Leaders who obey live with a clean conscience. Even if they sin, they confess quickly. They keep their conscience clean. And according to verse 1 of Proverbs 28, because the leader has a clean conscience, he's also filled with courageous boldness. He or she is able to stand when everybody else is running for no reason. But that wasn't the only benefit of being a leader who is marked by righteous behavior. In verse 2, we saw that godly leaders, God-honoring leaders, bring unity to a nation, to a church, to a family. In other words, they're not divisive. They don't seek division. They bring unity. In verse 5, we saw another benefit of the righteousness of a leader. And that is in the fact that righteous leaders understand true justice. They understand justice. They're able to make just decisions. And then in verse 9, we saw that righteous leaders have their prayers heard by the Lord. We talked about this last week as we kicked off the message last week. Right? It's not uh, an absolute guarantee that God hears every prayer uttered to him. But righteous leaders have the promise that God hears their prayers. And then in verse 10, we saw that righteous leaders inherit good. In verse 11, righteous leaders have great discernment. And then in verse 12, we kind of saw a summary of a righteous leader. Righteous leaders bring joy to the people that they lead. They bring joy. When the righteous exult, there is great honor. But when the wicked rise, man has to be sought out. In other words, evil leaders cause people to hide themselves, to scatter. But righteous leaders bring joy to the people that they lead, whether that's uh, in a nation, in a church, in a family. And then last week, we moved on to verses 13 and 14, where we saw the transparency of leadership. Not only are righteous, godly leaders, not only do their lives, uh, are, are they, not only do they live lives of obedience, they also live lives that are transparent. In other words, one way to evaluate a leader is by his tendency to either confess his sins or to cover up his sins. Leaders known for concealing their sin are not leaders that we should follow. On the other hand, we should follow those leaders who live righteously and then acknowledge their shortcomings, acknowledge their failures. Specifically, they acknowledge their sin because pride causes us to hide our fallenness but humility leads us to acknowledge our fallenness. And again, this isn't permission to go out and air all your dirty laundry. But it is a necessary component characteristic of a righteous leader to be one who confesses sin, who maintains a clean conscience. Rather than hiding sin, they're open with their sin. And then we saw in verses 16, 15 and 16 the gentleness of leadership. Godly leaders are not aggressive, power-grabbing people. They are simply people of gentleness. Now, I failed to mention something last week in light of verses 15 and 16. Um, but this is in 1 Peter. You don't have to turn there. But listen to 1 Peter. This is in the context of an elder. An elder is a leader in the church. And yet, verse uh, verses 1 to 3 of 1 Peter 5 go hand in hand with the idea of not heavy-handed leadership in the church. So this is 1 Peter ver chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, 
overseen, not under compulsion, but willingly according to God, and not for dishonest gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to you, but being examples to the flock. Right Within the context of the church, the leadership of elders is not to be one of oppression, but one of generosity, one of humility. I'm not called as an elder in the church to lord over anybody. I'm not called to be someone who's not a gentle leader. I'm not to trample on people in the church. I'm to lead from under. And so, again, another very important characteristic of godly leadership is the willingness to serve rather than to oppress. Now, we ended up last week in verses 17 and 18, and I call that the security of the leader. Righteous leaders are secure. In other words, a leader who lives a clean life, who keeps a clean conscience through constant confession of sin, is secure because the Lord keeps him secure. And that's just the opposite of a wicked leader. A wicked leader is always looking over his shoulder. In verse 17, it says, A man oppressed with the blood guilt of life will flee until death. In other words, a murderer, he's always going to be on the run. He's always going to conceal his crime, and he's always going to be on the run, always looking over his shoulder. And so we don't want to follow leaders who aren't secure, aren't secure because they have skeletons in their closet. Simply put, they have sin in their closet that is yet to be confessed. And so righteous leaders are those who maintain a right relationship with the Lord through a clean conscience and constant confession. Now, all of those leadership qualities from verse 1 down to verse 18, we're going to add to that now tonight in verses 19 to 27. Tonight, we're going to look at what I call the, the generosity of leadership. And you could put a lot of titles here. I just picked generosity. And so this is just another characteristic of godly leaders. They are righteous in their behavior. They are transparent in their behavior. They are gentle in their behavior. They're secure in their lives. And they're also men and women who have a right view of financial matters, a right view of money how to handle things when it comes to finances. Now, just to remind you, right, as we add to the characteristics of godly leaders, what's the context of of Proverbs 28? Well, this is a section in the book of Proverbs that was collected by a leader in Israel. That leader was King Hezekiah, a man who came to the throne over Judah in 715 B.C., He came to the throne at a time when the southern kingdom of Israel was in a real mess. They were in a real mess. And why were they in a mess? Because of their own sin, their own refusal to confess their sin, their own lack of transparency before the Lord, their constant disobedience to God's word. They were a nation that had just watched the northern kingdom fall to the Assyrians seven years earlier in 722 B.C. And understand, Judah was just as guilty as the northern kingdom. They weren't any better off. They were guilty. It was only by God's grace that the Assyrians were stopped before they actually walked into the southern kingdom and carried them off into captivity themselves. So if you just look at this situation in 715 B.C. from a human perspective, it doesn't look like Hezekiah is going to be king very long. It looks like he'll be king, they'll be disposed, and then God will do what God does. 
Yet, that doesn't discourage Hezekiah from seeking reform. He does seek revival. And we've seen what his approach to revival is. Return people to God's word, restore proper worship. That was his strategy. And I think we draw a lot of encouragement from Hezekiah. Because look, we live in the same kind of nation that he lived in. We live in a nation on the brink of collapse. Right? If, if God sends the Chinese army tomorrow to march from New York City to Los Angeles and overthrow America, God will be justified in doing it. Right? We recognize we're way past due judgment. We've been murdering babies in the womb for years, decades now. We've removed God from uh, civic government. We've removed God from public education for decades now. And so God will be justified in disposing of America tomorrow. But that shouldn't discourage us, and we shouldn't just throw up our hands and say, okay, Lord, just overthrow us. I think we do, in a sense, what Hezekiah does, right? He tries to exercise whatever influence he could exercise in whatever situation he's in. And I think we draw encouragement to that in our own lives. We can see the handwriting on the wall. We recognize a nation under judgment already happening, but we don't throw up in our hands in the air. We don't surrender. What do we do? We live rightly and we exercise influence in whatever area the Lord gives us to exercise that influence. Now, Hezekiah, understand, he has wide influence. He's the king. He's the king. But I've already noted, and I think this is very important, what Hezekiah doesn't seek, even though he is the king, he doesn't try to legislate revival. He doesn't try to pass laws to make people, you know, give outward obedience to the law, but remain in inward rebellion. No, what Hezekiah does, he goes and seeks out the wisdom of God through Solomon, and he returns people to temple worship. And again, I think this is encouragement to our hearts tonight. What should you do in a nation under judgment, in a nation today, past due judgment? What should you do? You should point people to scripture, and you should point people to a biblical church. That's what you should do. Right? Tell people that the word of God is available to them, encourage them to obey it, and tell them to worship with the saints. Worship with the saints in a good, God-fearing, biblically sound church. And I think that's what Hezekiah did in his day, right? Returning people to the word and restoring proper worship of God. Now, we also mentioned, in a sense, Hezekiah had some temporary success. He takes the throne in 715 B.C., and the first stage of Judah's overthrow wouldn't happen until about 100 years later. And we also read in Second Chronicles that there was some blessing in Judah. And the people said that they had not had that much joy in Judah since the time of David and Solomon. And so there was some temporary success, some temporary revival, some temporary reform. And, and all I would say to our hearts tonight, may God be just as gracious to us in America in 2023. May we live out our faith, may we exercise influence, and may we, by God's sovereignty and by his grace, try to forestall judgment as long as we can. Nobody wants to live in a nation under judgment. Nobody wants to live in that nation. Now understand, a nation under judgment, the church grows stronger. The true church grows stronger and is really blessed. But we want to stave off judgment as much as we can. Nobody calls for God's judgment. And so in that regard, may we do whatever we can to exercise influence for as long as the Lord gives us grace. Now, that's the context. And that little section of wisdom runs from Proverbs 25 to Proverbs 29. And now we're in this last section of 28 and 29 that I think addresses leadership. Leadership principles for Hezekiah, but also leadership principles for any believer at any age. We should lead in the culture. 
Again, we don't have to be vocal leadership, but we should lead by example as we obey the word of God. And guess what? We need to understand what a righteous leader looks like. And we need to lead as the Lord gives us influence. So let's return. And again, we're only going to look at verses 19 to 27 tonight under the heading of the generosity of leadership. You could call it the the financial sense, the wisdom principles about money in terms of leadership. I simply call this generosity. And we will see generosity at the very end of this section. Now, we're going to find out a couple of, a number of financial principles tonight. Now, as we think about leaders... Nearly every leader has some relationship to money. Um, If they're not in charge of finances in whatever area of leadership they're in, they certainly have oversight, most likely, in financial matters. As a result, a leader's view of money matters. It matters. Now, Scripture's clear. Money is not the root of all evil. The love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. So money's not sinful in and of itself. Money actually allows us to trade and to live and to survive. It's the grace of God, right? Money comes along to provide for our survival in the world, allows us to trade with one another. However, the love of money perverts all of that. And clearly we see warnings about loving money, being dominated by money, being controlled by money all throughout Scripture. Therefore, a leader's view and relationship to money are essential in assessing what kind of leader that person is. So I just want to read the whole section so we can see this all kind of fits together. There's going to be some verses in here you're going to be like, what does that have to do with money? Well, I'll try to help you understand that, make some connections in our minds as best I can. But I think if you look at this in section in its entirety from verse 19 to verse 27, It's dominated or it has a lot of flavor of financial matters. And so just follow along. This is Proverbs 28, verse 19. He who cultivates his ground will be satisfied with food, but he who pursues empty things will be satisfied with poverty. A faithful man will abound with blessings, but he who makes haste to be rich will not go unpunished. To show partiality is not good, Even for a piece of bread, a man will transgress. A man with an evil eye hurries after wealth and does not know that want will come upon him. He who reproves a man will afterward find more favor than he who flatters with the tongue. He who robs his father or his mother and says it is not a transgression is the companion of a man who destroys. An arrogant man stirs up strife, but he who trusts in Yahweh will be enriched. He who trusts in his own heart is a fool, but he who walks wisely will escape. He who gives to the poor will never want, but he who shuts his eyes will have many curses. So I think we're going to see a theme of money related to leadership. In these verses. Now, if we go back to verses 19 and 20, we see just a foundational principle of money that's repeated all throughout the Bible, specifically within the book of Proverbs. And that is how to obtain money in a God honoring way. So, verse 19 He who cultivates his ground will be satisfied with food, but he who pursues empty things will be satisfied with poverty. 
A faithful man will abound with blessings, but he who makes haste to be rich will not go unpunished. A constant theme in the book of Proverbs, a constant theme in Scripture is that people who work are blessed with money and have food to eat. And those who refuse to work wind up in poverty. That's a general principle of life, right? It's not foolproof. It is a general. Some people can't work. Some people are unable to work. But in general, those who work will have their needs met and will have money. Now, what you see in verse 19 is a pretty simple principle. He who cultivates his ground. That's the idea of tilling the land, right? It's somebody who's growing a garden, working the land. It's the picture of hard work. Right? It's hard working to till the soil, to cultivate the ground. And again, this gets back to Genesis 3. Right? As sin entered the world, so did curses. God cursed the serpent, God cursed the woman, and God cursed the man. And Adam's curse was the concept and the penalty and the curse of hard work. No longer would the ground give, easily, give up food easily. There would be thorns, there would be thistles, and guess what? There would be sweat on Adam's brow. That's part of the curse of Genesis 3. Simply put, it would be hard for Adam and for all men after him to pull food from the ground, to pull a living from the earth. Ever since that curse was given, though, man has tried to find a way around it. Right? Man has sought a way around it. He sought a way around the curse of working in order to survive. And any time man does that, he gets into trouble. Now, one of the primary ways that man has sought to avoid work is through the chasing of empty things, right? You see that in the, very, in the second half of verse 19. He who pursues empty things will be satisfied with poverty. In other words, man wants to short-circuit the curse. He wants to short-circuit the curse, he wants to get money without hard work. In other words, right, he wants to get rich quick. He wants to get rich quick. And though it is possible, and we certainly wouldn't deny this, in a fallen world, it is possible to acquire wealth without work. But that's not the normal course of life for most people. However, that doesn't discourage people from getting caught up in the get-rich-quick schemes. They abound in the world. People gamble until they have no money left. People take part in very risky multi-level marketing schemes until they have no money left. People will give their money to all sorts of people in hopes of a financial windfall that never comes, right? We see the foolishness of trying to acquire wealth without work. But again, that's the pattern of the world. That is the pattern. That is the foolishness of the world. They seek money in ways that don't involve tilling the ground. 1 Timothy 6. 1 Timothy 6, verse 9. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Right? Trying to avoid the order of the world after the fall brings trouble. It brings a snare. It brings many foolish and harmful desires. Simply put, get rich, get rich quick schemes actually become get poor quick schemes. Um, when we first got married, I got involved in a multi-level marketing uh, company. Strangely enough, the multi-level marketing company was started by a pastor. And my pastor asked me to join the pyramid. 
And after a year, my pastor resigned to do this full-time. He lasted about a year, and I lasted less than that and ended up with not a lot of money and a lot of debt, right? At the time, I was just not wise enough. I needed the wisdom of God to see through these get-rich-quick schemes. Sadly, this was a Christian pastor, a Christian organization that was promising a fact or, or an opportunity for Christians to get rich quick. Again, I kind of scratch my head every time I think about that situation. The Lord was gracious to us. The debt was paid off. But still, these things abound because understand evil people understand their own flesh, but they understand your flesh too. And what does our flesh tempt us to do? Get rich quick without work, right? It is a constant temptation in the world. And if you think about verses 19 and 20, the simple principle is this. Godly leaders encourage work and they encourage others to work, right? That's godly leadership. And men, as I speak to the men in front of me tonight, this is our responsibility in the world, This is our responsibility in the world. This is our part of the curse, right? We have been cursed with hard labor. We've been cursed with a ground that's hard to get fruit out of and vegetables out of and beef out of. It's hard to do this. But this is a result of us taking a bite of the fruit. And so that curse has been passed down to us. And I assure you, men, as the world progresses deeper into sin, it progresses deeper into laziness. We live in a lazy culture, but men, we can't be lazy. We live in a lazy culture, but we cannot be lazy. We live in a culture, and I've been there, we live in a culture that brags about getting out of work. Don't be that kind of man. We understand the difficulty of work, but guess what? That's the grace of God, too. It's the grace of God that we can work. It's the grace of God that he does provide for us and our families through our work. So when it comes to acquiring money for our families, do it the Lord's way, and you will be blessed. You will be blessed. That doesn't necessarily mean you'll be rich, right? But your needs will be met and the Lord will care for you. And I think as we look at this section, we begin this section in terms of a leader's relationship to money. Godly leadership teaches patient and diligent work as the way to acquire money. Godly leadership teaches that. Whether it's a politician, an elder, a father in the home, a Christian in the culture. We should exalt God-honoring work in order to acquire money. And we should discourage get-rich-quick schemes and laziness. Now, a second attitude as we move deeper in this section on a leader and money matters. A second attitude of the godly leader is that he doesn't use money as a bribe. He doesn't use money as a bribe. Now, look at verse 21. A little difficult verse right here. Your pastor Really scratched his head on this one, read a lot of stuff. But look at verse 21. To show partiality is not good. Even for a piece of bread, a man will transgress. Now, let's just take this in two lines, right? We got the first line of verse 21. And the first line's pretty, pretty simple to understand. Partiality is the sin of preferring one person over another for the wrong reasons, right? That's the sin of partiality. In other words, we are to judge people fairly. We are to judge with a biblical standard. Now, the second line of verse 21 is also pretty easy to understand. Some people, in fact, this person, this man in the second line of verse 21, some people can be bribed into sin with very little motivation. 
In other words, this man, he will sin just for a single piece of bread. Now, think about Antichrist real quick. Go to the tribulation period. Right. Everything goes crazy high. You have to work a day to get a loaf of bread. And so we understand food can cause people, just a little bit of food if they're real hungry, can cause people to transgress the law, right? We understand. So we understand the first part of verse 421. We understand the second part of verse 21. Now the question is, how do they relate to one another? What's the wisdom principle here? here? And I would say to you, after reading a lot and studying a lot, it seems that the principle of verse 21 is that godly leaders, righteous leaders, don't use money to bribe others to show partiality. Godly leaders don't use money to bribe others to show partiality. In other words, if it is sinful to show partiality, and if sinful people can be easily bribed into sin, then the righteous leader would never use his money in order to get the outcome he wants. And in this case, it's the sin of partiality. And you can think of it this way. People with money, right? People with money, they trust that their money will keep them out of trouble. That's not hard to understand, right? People with money often trust that their money will keep them out of trouble. They assume that they can buy their innocence through bribes and schemes to protect their own name. Right? They assume that. And the reason they assume that is because they understand the sinful nature of people. Just like this man who can be bribed for a piece of bread. Sinful people recognize that. Therefore... They bribe people to show partiality through lies and deceit and false testimony. Right? This is a temptation. This is an action of a sinful, wicked leader. Now, if all that sounds familiar, it should. We just went through like a really long trial in our own state about some guy like that. Right? Who used his influence, used his wealth in order to cover up his sin time and time and time again. But again, that's the way of the wicked leader. We can even think about our own leadership we've had in our own country who have taken part, taken their wealth and used it to cover up their tracks, right? This is the way of the world. Take their money, bribe people to show partiality so that that rich person is kept out of trouble. And I think the principle here is simple. The righteous leader wouldn't do that. The righteous leader wouldn't do that. He wouldn't use money in order to justify the sin in somebody else's life in order to cover up his own sin. Now, in verse 22, we're going to see some other things related to this, which helps me think verse 21 is teaching that principle. In verse 22, we learn that the wicked leader is envious and undiscerning. The wicked leader is envious and undiscerning. Verse 22, a man with an evil eye hurries after wealth and does not know that want will come upon him. Now, you see the word evil, or the legacy standard translates it evil, evil eye. You could actually translate that greedy eye. It's the idea of someone who has a very envious eye, right? Not necessarily, it is evil to be envious. It is evil to be greedy. But specifically, this could be a man with a greedy eye. And what does a man with a greedy eye do? He hurries after wealth. He hastes after wealth. This is, again, the idea of get rich quick. And so the man with the envious eye hurries after wealth, but he doesn't know that want will actually come upon him. Um, it, it shocks me at times when I hear about cases of people embezzling money from organizations. Right? People do this. They get caught. They steal money from their job or whatever they, whoever they work for. In fact, my little hometown of Whitmire many, many years ago I had one bank in town, 
And there were, I think, three tellers, maybe two or three tellers in that bank who conspired to embezzle money uh, from that little bank in Whitmire. And I looked it up just to see if it was still on the Internet. It is. Those three tellers embezzled more than $400,000 over the course of five years. And they went to trial. They were convicted. And they were asked, you know, why did you do this? I mean, you work in a bank. Why, why would you think you could get away with embezzling money? And they simply said, we got away with it one time. And the more we got away with it, the more secure we felt. And to the point where we competed each day to see who could embezzle the most money that day. It became a scheme, a game for themselves to get rich. Now, eventually, time and truth go hand in hand. And it took them five years to figure this out, but they were called, and guess what? They went to prison. So want came upon them. They hastened after wealth in a very easy way. They got rich through no work of their own. They got rich off the backs of other hardworking people. But guess what? Want came upon them. They never considered the end of their greedy scheme. And again, that seems like foolishness to us, right? Why would somebody in a working in a bank think they could get away with it? Yet many do. Many in all sorts of organizations seek to hasten after wealth. And so the principle here is clear. A person with a greedy eye, a person with an envious eye, they chase after wealth. But they don't even consider that they'll end up in want, right? They're trying to get rich, but at the end of the day, they will end up in poverty, and again, this is an example from the negative. Righteous leaders would not be driven by greed. Righteous leaders would not do that. But evil leaders are constantly driven by greed. Now, verse 23. This is going to seem somewhat out of place right here. Verse 23. But I think since it's in a section on financial principles of the leader, I think it relates. And I'll try to help us with this. Verse 23 simply says, He who reproves a man will afterward find more favor than he who flatters with the tongue. That's a pretty simple wisdom principle that you can just pull out and you can apply across the board. This principle is listed in other places in the book of Proverbs. And the principle is pretty simple. If you correct people, right, if you offer rebuke, if you offer reproof, if you offer biblical correction, it will go farther in the long run with those people. It will go farther. Now, it may bring temporary discomfort, it may bring temporary problems in your life to rebuke or to correct. But in the long run, if this person loves the Lord, they will be grateful for your corrections. True friends, true believers will come back and really appreciate the rebuke that you've given them. On the other hand, right, those who don't love the Lord, those who don't care for your rebuke, won't come back. Now, again, why is this principle here really in a section on finances? Well, I'll just offer you a few thoughts right here. Number one, it seems that righteous leaders are those willing to reprove, willing to rebuke, willing to correct in anyone that needs correction, including the rich. Right? It seems that's the principle right here. Righteous leaders will offer correction to anyone regardless of their financial status. On the other hand, wicked leaders, what will they do? They will flatter the rich. Does it matter what sin they're in? They're not going to get correction from a wicked leader. They're going to get flattery. And why is the wicked leader flattering the rich? Simply to get what he wants from the rich. And so it seems in this context, this wisdom principle applies for the righteous leader. He's one who will offer correction 
in any setting to anyone because he or she loved the Lord. They love the Lord. Their desire is to defend the truth, to defend Christ. And they're going to show no partiality, which gets back to the verse about partiality. Right? We recognize it's a sin to show partiality. And so righteous leaders are not those who are partial based upon someone's financial status. And again, we don't have to look too far into the world to see this principle played out. Some people, because of their wealth, avoid any correction. They stand above the law. They stand above the government. They stand above the church. They stand above the family. Right? They're untouchable in a sense because of their wealth. But the righteous leader is willing to reprove whenever needed. The righteous leader will reprove. He will offer correction whenever it is needed regardless of financial status. He's not given over to flattery so that he can get what he wants. He's one who will say and speak the truth despite the consequences. And sometimes, and that may not be short consequences, sometimes you speak the truth and correction and there's long-term consequences. You lose relationships. You lose things in your life. But again, the righteous leader is not concerned about that. He's concerned about honoring the Lord. Now, verse 24. Again, we move clearly back to money here, but again, a very interesting principle to stick in this section. Verse 24, he who robs his father or his mother and says, it is not a transgression, is the companion of a man who destroys. Now, verse 24, it reveals how far someone with a wrong view of money will go in their sin. How far will someone with a wrong view of money go in their sin? Well, in this case, the sin is of a child robbing a parent. They will rob their parent and they will claim it's not a sin. Yet the Lord says, oh, it's a sin. In fact, it's a sin that's equal to the sin of a man who destroys somebody else. So don't think it's a lesser sin because you rob your mom or your dad. You are the companion of a man who destroys. Now, why does this need to be said? Why does it need to be said? Simply put, some people rationalize or justify their greed, right? They justify their greed. They justify their selfishness. They justify their crime, their financial crime. And though a child, right, may think, well, mom or dad are either, they're either A, too old to see what I'm doing, or B, they're too rich to care, I can assure you God is not too far away to see. And so it's named a sin right here, a very clear sin of a child robbing his father or his mother. And again, though we may think this is not too common, oh, it's common. And it's actually common on the other end of the spectrum. Um, turn to Mark chapter 7, Mark chapter 7. So on one hand, you've got children who will rob their parents and say it's not a sin. But in Mark 7, you're going to have parents who actually need help from their children financially. And the children won't offer it. And it'll still be a sin for not helping your parents. Now look at this, Mark 7. Um, Jesus is surrounded by the Pharisees. It's where he often is, right? Being surrounded by these legalistic men who are caught up in their traditions and so they're trying to corner Jesus, and so Jesus responds. They're actually accusing the disciples of not following the man-made traditions of the Pharisees. And so Jesus responds in verse 9, Mark 7, verse 9. And he was also saying to them, You are good at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother. And he who speaks evil, a father or mother, is to be put to death. But you say, 
This is the teaching of the Pharisees. But you say, if a man says to his father or his mother, whatever you might benefit from me is Corban, that is to say given to God, you no longer leave him to do anything for his father or his mother, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition which you have handed down, and you do many things such as that. And so what Jesus is rebuking, right, sometimes elderly parents need financial help from their kids. Right? They don't have any money that the kids can steal. They actually need financial help from their children. And the scripture, Jesus says, Moses says, which is a reflection of the Old Testament teaching, Moses said, the Old Testament says, that children are honor their parents. And that would also include honoring a parent financially. If a parent needs financial help, they would certainly seek out their children for this help. However, greedy children were not willing to part with their money. They weren't willing to part with their money. And so they went to the Pharisees, and they were trying to look for a loophole. And the Pharisees are really good at loopholes in the law, right? And so the Pharisees offered a little loophole to greedy children. And they said, look, if your parents need money, just tell them whatever money you have is Corbin. And what that means, Corbin's another word for money set aside for God. In our culture, it'd be similar to saying, you know, mom calling up, hey, you know, baby, we need help with the electrical bill. Oh, sorry, mom, we can't give you any help this month. We're going to tithe and whatever's left over, we're going to give it to the Lord, right? And so they would get out. They would be able to hold on to their wealth and they would be able to not honor their father and their mother with, with their wealth. And so, in other words, you have children on one hand who are greedy, so they rob their parents. And in Mark, you have children who are greedy and they don't give to their parents. And so we shouldn't assume, right, that financial sin is just relegated to our relationships outside the family. Right? Sometimes your greed can affect your family. Husband's greed can affect the wife's, a wife's life. Uh, children's greed can affect their parents' life. And so I have to be careful, right? Greed is always a temptation of the flesh. And so here we see, and you can go back to Proverbs 28 now, right? Here we see the opposite of that in the sense of here are children robbing their parents. So if children aren't helping, they're robbing their parents. And again, what's the principle? The principle is that godly leaders would be aware of that. They would be aware of the sin of greed. They would be aware of the sin of the love of money. They would be aware of how far greed will lead people into sin. They would certainly lead people away from greed. And so we've, up to this point in Proverbs 28, we've seen the consequences of a wrong view of money, right? A wrong view of money leads people into laziness. A wrong view of money leads people into bribery. A wrong view of money leads people into flattery. A wrong view of money plunges people into sin against those closest to them. And so we've seen a lot of warnings about a wrong view of money. Now, as we end this section, what are the right view? What should a leader's view of money be? What are the right components of viewing money? And it really comes down to two components. And we're going to find these in verses 25, 26, and 27. Right, so look at verse 25. An arrogant man stirs up strife, but he who trusts in Yahweh will be enriched. He who trusts in his own heart is a fool, but he who walks wisely will escape. So the first component of a right view of money, whether you're a believer, a leader, whatever course of life you're in, the first component of a right view of money is trusting the Lord. That's the first component. Simply put, if you boil it down, the root cause of greed 
The root cause of greed is anxiety and unbelief. That's the root cause of greed. Greedy people are those who refuse to believe that the Lord can provide. Greedy people are those who refuse to believe that the Lord can provide. So what do they do? They worry about finances. They seek to secure their own future. And why would you seek to secure your future? Because you don't trust the Lord with it. So the bank account's got to be so big so that I can go on tomorrow. I don't trust God tomorrow. So I'm going to make sure I trust in verse 26 in my own heart. And what does verse 26 say about a person who trusts in their own heart? They're foolish. They're foolish. So the first component, right, of a proper view of finances for a leader is trust in Yahweh. Trust in the Lord. Now in verse 25, we see that an arrogant man stirs up strife. And although arrogance and greed, we've already seen go hand in hand, the better translation right there is the greedy man, right? The greedy man. The legacy standard, I actually wrote here, greedy man stirs up strife. Because the Hebrew here is a very interesting phrase. The Hebrew here is a man with a wide soul. That's how it reads in the original Hebrew, a man with a wide soul. In other words, he has a big appetite. In other words, he's greedy. He's got a big hole to fill up. He's got a big soul to fill up. He's got a big appetite. And how do you fill up a big appetite? You hoard. You try to acquire, right? You have a wide soul. In other words, it takes a lot to fill this guy up. And what does he do in order to fill himself up? He stirs up strife. In other words, he's always always up to something looking to add to his wealth. He never fills his soul up. He never finds his contentment in the Lord, right? He never finds his trust in Yahweh, right? Always stirring something up in order to add or hoard his more wealth. And so that man, right, is contrasted with the person in the second half of verse 25, the one who trusts in the Lord. Because the opposite of greed is trust. The opposite of greed is trust, right? You can say the opposite of greed is giving, but why do you give? Because you trust the Lord to give back to you, to provide for your needs. And so the opposite of greed is trust. Greed says, I don't trust God to provide, while the one who trusts in Yahweh says, I can rest easy Because the Lord will provide. He's not stirring up strife. He's not always up to something. He's not up to another scheme to get rich. This man, this woman is content with what they have. And they trust the Lord to continue to provide. And then verse 26 kind of repeats the idea, right? Trusting in your own heart is a sure way to be let down. But the one who lives knowing that God will provide is always delivered from trouble, right? Always delivered from trouble. So the right view of money begins, the first component, the first foundation of a right view of money is a total trust in the Lord to provide. And righteous leaders have to view money that way. They have to view money that way. Now, a second component of a proper view of money is verse 27. A second component of a proper view of money is generosity. Right? So those who are righteous leaders, they trust the Lord. And number two, they are generous. And why are they generous? Because they trust the Lord. Verse 27. He who gives to the poor will never want, but he who shuts his eyes will have many curses. So a clear principle of money in Scripture is that the more generous you are, the more generous God is to you, right? He who sows sparingly reaps sparingly. He who sows generously reaps generously. But most unbelievers reject the wisdom of verse 27. They say, well, the more I give, the poorer I'm going to be. Right? That's the reasoning of an unbeliever. Scripture says the more you give, the more you'll have. 
Right? God blesses you. That is God's wisdom. Our generosity and our generosity to others, especially the poor right here in verse 27, assures God's generosity to us. God is going to provide. On the other hand, you see in verse 27, if you close your eyes, if you shut your eyes, if you close your wallets, if you close your heart to God and to others, God closes his bank to you. Right? There's the principle. There's the financial principle seen so many times in Scripture. And so righteous leaders are generous leaders, while evil leaders are fueled by greed. Now, if you think about leadership, a lot of people seek leadership because they are greedy. A lot of people seek leadership in order to acquire wealth. They want the influence, which allows them to gather more money to themselves. They aren't interested in serving others. Uh, right? The principle of leadership in Scripture is servant leadership. Leaders serve, but some leaders, they're not looking to serve. They're looking to be served. And one way they're served is by acquiring money because of their leadership. But you can tell a lot about a person, especially about a leader, how they view, how they handle, and how they're related to money. Now, that only leaves verse 28 in Proverbs 28. And though it really pains my OCD, i got to leave it hanging. So all of you OCD people who have to finish up a chapter, you just got to come back next week. you got to live one week, which is one verse there. But I think last verse, the last verse of chapter 28 actually goes with the first two verses of chapter 29. So we'll kind of resume there next week. Now let me just give you a few quick thoughts just for tonight and what all we've seen. Try to tie up some loose ends. So what do we learn? What are some principles of wisdom right here in, in Proverbs 28? Number one, be faithful in your work. Be faithful in your work. If you look at the New Testament, Jesus tells about 39 or 40 parables, kind of disputed, 39 or 40. But a third of those, in fact, if it's 39, it's actually a third. 13 to 39 are actually parables about money. Jesus talks a lot about money. A lot of his parables are about money. And so I just want to finish up with a few principles um, from those parables that I think will connect our hearts to Christ tonight, as Christ talked about money. And one thing that Jesus taught was the need to be faithful. Be faithful in your work. He told a parable of a faithful man. There's really three men that come to him. Two were faithful. One was unfaithful. The two faithful ones were awarded by the Lord for their faithfulness. And the one who was unfaithful, he was judged by the Lord because what did he do? He squandered his opportunity, right? He didn't take advantage of the opportunity the Lord gave to him. The man gave to him. As I think about the world, understand none of us are called to the same standard of wealth. None of us are called to the same standard of wealth. Some of us are equipped to earn more money and some less. Right? That's part of that parable that Jesus tells. Not everybody has the same ability to earn the same amount of money. The issue is always not how much you have, but rather how faithful are you to earn what you've been given the ability to earn. The command is not to get rich. The command is to be faithful and the Lord will provide. Look, there's some rich people in the world. And and the sad reality of rich people is that if you ask them, they never have enough money, right? They never have enough money. And there's some poor people in the world who never seem to be without money, right? Again, this gets back to a principle of Scripture. God provides for His own. We only get into trouble in terms of money when we are unfaithful to the task before us. The only way we get into trouble is when we worry if we have enough money, Be faithful in your work and trust the Lord to provide. Look, our our family's a living testimony to that principle. Our family's a living testimony to that principle. We've never had too much, but I can assure you we've never had too little. 
Right? God is faithful to provide what we need. And so be faithful in the work that the Lord gives you to do. Number two, be aware of your greed and selfishness. Be aware of your greed and selfishness. Jesus taught a parable. It's often called the parable of the rich fool. Right? This rich fool, he has abundance, an abundance of crops. And so what does he decide to do? Instead of being generous, I'm going to build me some barns. And I'm going to store up my surplus. And yet, what news does he get in his life? Uh, you're going to die tomorrow, right? And so what does Jesus say about that greed of the rich fool? Luke 12, 15. Here's a principle of that parable. Then he said to them, watch out and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Do not get your value because of what you have or possess. We can't let our lives be defined by what's in the bank. Our abundance, right? Our life can't be defined based upon our possessions. And that's very difficult because we live in a world that's consumed with greed. So be on your guard against every form of greed. And then number three, what do we learn tonight? Be generous. Um, one of my favorite parables, I was just talking to Joe about this tonight. One of my favorite parables that Jesus tells is the parable of the laborers, right? We've seen that parable. A vineyard, a vineyard owner needs some men to work in his vineyard to pick the grapes. And he goes out and hires some that work all day. Six in the morning and six at night. Then he hires some that work nine in the morning and six at night. Then he hires some that work from noon to six. Then he hires some that work from three to, in the afternoon to six. And then he goes out and hires some, some workers that just work an hour. They just work from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. And then when payday comes, guess what happens? They all get paid the same. They all get paid the same. And the issue in the parable is that the ones who work the whole day Right? And got paid what God, he promised them. The vineyard owner said, I'll pay you a denarius. They got paid what they were promised, and yet what were they? They were envious of the people who worked less. Right? They were envious of the people who worked less. In fact, they were envious of the vineyard owner's grace and generosity. Right? And who did the vineyard owner represent? He represented God. Right? God is gracious. God is generous. God gives and gives and gives. And we, in this room tonight, we're all recipients of God's generosity. And so the real question is, why would any of us be greedy? I mean, if God's been so generous to us, why would we ever battle selfishness? Yet we do, because we battle the flesh. Right? We battle the fallen man, the old man, the old woman. That flesh wages war against the new man and the new woman. And the flesh urges us, tempts us to be selfish, to be greedy, to be self-centered. That's why you've got to crucify the flesh. You've got to crucify, crucify the greed in your heart. You've got to crucify. I've got to crucify the selfishness in my heart. I said this morning, going through Luke, one of the, a, great, a great proof of salvation is having true joy when God blesses somebody else. I would say this, another incredibly important evidence of salvation is seen in the generosity of your bank statement each month. All right? that, that, that's a great revealer of someone's true salvation. Are you generous with your money? Are you trusting the Lord to provide for you? Are you contributing to the Lord's work? Um, remember, the thief... He's not fully repented when he stops stealing. He's fully repented when he actually starts giving, right? And this is true of us. We were thieves in our old life. Our old lives, we were thieves. We were greedy. We were self-centered in every way financially. And yet the transformation of salvation in our lives has taken us from being thieves to people who are generous. 
Right? That's a great proof of salvation. And so may we all seek to be generous every day because God is surely generous to us. Amen? Let me pray for us. Lord, we are thankful. We're thankful for your wisdom. Lord, we're thankful that we can open a book and hear from heaven tonight. These wisdom principles given centuries ago bring conviction to our hearts tonight. Lord, give us a right view of money. Lord, money is a grace in our life. It is a way for us to live, to survive. It is a way for us to contribute to the church, to contribute to your working in the world. Lord, help us to see money as simply something you've given us to be good stewards of. Protect our hearts from greed. Protect our hearts from selfishness. Lord, help us to be generous people, generous with our time, generous with our resources, but even generous with the money we have. Lord, help us to give as you have so graciously given to us. We ask this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.